Amen. Well, good morning. I'm Robbie Baxter. It's a delight to be with you this morning. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, we are continuing our series in the book of Ephesians this morning, and we are in chapter 2. And uh, as you're turning there, by way of introduction, let me, let me say that one of, the, one of the great questions that we can ask ourselves is, why did God choose to save us? And this particular passage in Ephesians uh, really answers that question in the clearest and, and simplest way possible. The answer is, because of the great love with which he loved us. And, and of course, this fits with what we've been seeing from the book of Ephesians so far, uh, namely that God is worthy to be blessed because of the great love and grace that he has shown us in Christ. And we ought, therefore, to be bold witnesses of this love, living in the light of the eternal and cosmic victory that Christ has won for us and the sure inheritance that we have and the blessing that we have in that by the Holy Spirit. And so this passage helps us to get a firmer grasp on, on what, we, what we've been calling the golden thread running throughout the whole of Ephesians. And, and that golden thread is the grace and peace that believers have in Christ. And so in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we're going to get a better view of just what happened to us when we were saved. Uh, one way, and you might think this is a simplistic way, and, and maybe it is a little bit simplistic, but, but nonetheless a helpful way of thinking about baptism is really to say that throughout the whole of the Christian life, discipleship is, is discovering what happened to you when you were baptized. So it, it's not incumbent upon you to, to have grasped every doctrine in the Christian religion to be baptized. It's not incumbent upon you to know exactly or to be able to articulate perfectly God's love. It, really, the whole of discipleship is discovering what happened to you when you were baptized. And in a similar way, Ephesians 2 is discovering for us what happened when we were regenerated, when the Holy Spirit came into our lives and, and revealed to us Jesus and showed him as, as worthy of our trust and admiration and love and, and obedience. And that's really the, the, the whole of discipleship. One way of describing the whole of discipleship is discovering just what God has done for us in salvation. And, and another way to think about this is Ephesians 2 is, is one, of those, one of those crucial texts about the doctrines of grace, the, the wonderful doctrines of grace. But you see here that the doctrines of grace aren't salvation by knowledge. It's not salvation by, by being able to articulate perfectly just what it is in, in predestination that makes it so glorious or so mysterious. It's really discovering what God has done for us and rejoicing in that fact. It's not salvation by knowledge, it's salvation by grace. And so the key truth for us in Ephesians 2 is that God has revealed the riches of his grace and kindness by making us alive in Christ and building us up in him, building us up in him. And so a question for us, I think, right as we uh, dive into this is, in what ways have you particularly been helped to see God's grace and love more clearly? And how has your understanding of your salvation grown in the various circumstances of life? That's a pretty simple question, but it's worth pondering and it's worth asking from time to time because, well, as I say, that's part of discipleship, is discovering just what God has done for us in salvation, something that we did not know even to look for and something that we certainly could not accomplish for ourselves. And that reveals the graciousness of the Lord and the love that he has shown us in the gospel so clearly. Well, let, let's see it from the text itself. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, this is what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Pause there for just a minute. You see, a light view of our condition apart from Christ will lead us to a light view of his grace in the gospel. And so Paul here begins by explaining to us just how desperate our condition was apart from Christ, just how evil the effects of our wickedness was in his sight. You see, we need the Spirit's help not just to know Jesus, but also to know our desperate need of him. So we see here that when we were apart from Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins, in short, in rebellion against God. And we walked in this. We were dead in respect of our calling. We followed the course of this world. That is, apart from Christ, we lived our lives as though this world was all that there was. We were unmindful of who we were created to be. We did not live in light of eternity or the awesome fact that this world was created as a kind of stage to display God's glory. No, we lived as though what we had going on in our, li in, on in our lives was the most important fact about us. All that ought to be amazing and move our souls to wonder and worship, like the fact that we exist and have breath in our lungs, or the fact that the sun rises and warms the earth each morning, or that we experience so many good things, became less meaningful because we pursued our own wills and our disobedience. And we began to act as if we had eternity to burn, as if the world were not so wonderful after all, or awe-inspiring, or even really that mysterious. We could figure it out after all. Or we were fastidious about all the different things we had going in our lives, the things we could do on Sunday mornings rather than go to worship the Lord. We did all sorts of things in our own strength and power and will, and we were unmindful of God. We acted as if we did not stand on the edge of eternity or as if we would never have to give an account of our lives. We were dead in respect of our calling. We were dead in respect of our liberty, following the prince of the power of the air. That is, apart from Christ, we lived our lives not as obedient sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, but as rebels following an enemy spirit. We lived according to his will, according to the, power, the prince of the power of the air, doing what seemed good to him, blown about by his corrupting will. We were enslaved to the enemy of God and became enemies with him. We were dead in respect of our liberty. We were slaves. We were dead in respect of our humanity, living in the passions of our flesh. That is, apart from Christ, we were moved by our passions rather than by him. We did what made us comfortable and well-liked and admired by others. And we had no concern for the kind of self-denial that God's law requires of us. Instead, we were moved by our sinful instincts and became less human as a result. The animal instinct is what moved us rather than God's law and his will. And that was what reigned, reigned supreme in our hearts. And so we were dead in respect of our humanity. And we were dead in respect of our destiny. We were under the wrath of God. That is, apart from Christ, our destiny was not to be swallowed up by the ground and eaten by worms and vanish out of his existence, but to face the wrath of God against our sin. And though we gave little thought to it, our sin offended God, and God's justice could not overlook it. We did not consider that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but we imagined that we could escape it. Or we flattered ourselves about all the good things that we had done or, or <laughs> intended to do, 
and imagined that this would be more than enough to make us righteous in his sight. And all the while, the great gulf between us and God remained, and there was no sure promise of eternal life, nothing that we could bank on, and all that stood between us and hell was the air. We were dead and under the wrath of God. And so this gives us a picture of our very desperate condition apart from Christ, and it is very necessary to know how desperate our condition was apart from Christ because we will be indifferent about his great love and about the great graciousness that he showed us if we just take a very dim view about ourselves apart from Christ and think that, oh, it wasn't really so bad after all. And as I say, sometimes this is just as much an aspect of discipleship as, as anything else because sometimes when we were saved, we, we hardly knew what we were being saved from almost. And so God is great. God is very gracious and loving to show us just how great his grace and love is to us by revealing to us how much we needed it. John Calvin says this, he says, let this then be held as a fixed principle that the union of our soul with God is the true and only life and that out of Christ we were altogether dead because of sin, because the cause of sin, because the cause of death reigns in us. Well, let's turn again to the text and see how this is resolved. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what delivered us from this desperate condition? Paul answers very clearly, the great love with which God loved us in Christ. God, who is rich in mercy, loved us. We have, made, we have been made alive then with a new destiny, alive together with Christ. That is, eternal life with Christ has been shared with us. This life that Jesus has has now been given to us, and we've been made alive with a new destiny in him. And we've been made alive with a restored humanity. We've been raised with Christ. That is, we've been given a new nature, no longer in bondage to our passions or to the prince of the power of the air, but free in fellowship with Christ. We've been made alive with a restored humanity. We've been made alive with a new calling, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that is, our view is not just to this earth or to the things that we can presently see, but it is with Christ in fellowship with him. And we recognize that the present form of this world is passing away. And rather than that make us depressed or sad or anxious or fearful, we see that we've been given a new hope and a new calling in him. And we are filled with joy and our, our thoughts go towards him and to the new life that he has called us to. And that gives us great encouragement and great hope. And our view is toward Christ and his eternal kingdom. His kingdom is our home. And that is what we are aiming our whole lives toward. So we've been given a new calling, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And God did this for us, one, while we were still dead in our sin, and two, so that we might demonstrate his grace to us in Christ Jesus. So while we were still, still dead in our sin, that is, we were not the decisive actors in our salvation. We did not reach out to God and ask him to save us. We had no thought for God 
and his righteousness. We did not care about his judgment. We were content to follow our passions and instincts. We were slaves to sin. But God, being rich in mercy, did not allow us to remain there. That's the story of sovereign grace. We cannot plumb the depths of this grace. We cannot figure out how it all ties together so that all of our anxious thoughts are resolved or all the the tensions that we feel go away. But the story is, is that though we were dead in our sins, God, but God, reached out and saved us. That's the story of sovereign grace. And you see, the story of salvation is a story of God's grace from first to last because it is a story of God saving a people who were his enemies. And God's grace is not merely God's having done the things that we could not do for ourselves, as true as that is, to make atonement for our sin or release us from the power of the devil. God's grace is God's having done the things we did not look for or even seek, but desperately needed. So God saved us while we were still dead in our sins. And he did it in order to demonstrate his grace to us in Christ Jesus. The glory all goes to God in the drama of salvation. His grace is immeasurable. We can never plumb the depths of it. The God who saved us when we were, when we were opposed to him did so to show us his gracious, loving, and kind character. This is who he is. This is the kind of God that we worship. Remember, I can't remember when we, we, we talked about this. It was probably maybe even last year or so. We, we were in the Old Testament. I think we were doing uh, grace in the Old Testament, grace in unexpected places. And we, we saw about how the Israelites, when they were called out of God, called by God out of Egypt, and were walking through the wilderness and were faced with some troubles, began to complain and grumble against the Lord. And they turned to him and said, well, Lord, you brought us out here to kill us. And, and think about what that revealed about their hearts, their assessment of all that God had done for them. Their assessment was not that God was gracious and loving and kind and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, Exodus 34, 6, or Psalm 103. Their assessment of God was that, at the best, he was the sort of God that you kind of do the sorts of things to get him on your side, but even that was kind of an iffy thing, and you better watch yourself or you might get on his bad side and Man, at the end of the day, probably the, the most that can be said, he's out to kill you, he's out to get you. <laughs> and that's the most wicked thing we could ever say against God. And, and here we have the gospel, which completely undercuts such notions, which completely does away with any boasting that we could make on our own account and leaves us standing in, in, in wonder and, and awe and, and, and with hearts filled with joy and worship at the graciousness of the Lord, who is revealed in his loving kind character as the one who saves people who were his enemies and whose, whose commitment to them is never ending and, and, and steadfast and full of love and hope. And that's the kind of God that we worship. And that's what the doctrines of grace reveal. And that's what Ephesians 2 is all about. God did this while we were still dead in our sins, and he did it to demonstrate who he is so that we would know him as the God that he is, as loving, as, as loving and, and kind and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So let's see it for what it really is. God's grace will be celebrated in the coming ages. That is, it is so weighty and so magnificent and so awesome and wonderful that we will sing of it for all eternity. What God has done for his people is worthy of the highest praise for ages and ages and ages. And God's grace is not a one-time thing, but it is lavish in its kindness upon his people. 
Our destiny as the blessed people of the blessed God will be experienced without end because his grace toward us will never end. Well, hear what John Stott says. I particularly appreciate this quote just because of the very clear way he says it. He says, to say justification by faith, that's what we're talking about right here, justification by faith. To say justification by faith is merely another way of saying justification by Christ. Faith has no, absolutely no value in itself. Its value lies solely in its object. Faith is the eye that looks to Christ, the hand that lays hold of him, the mouth that drinks the water of life. And the more clearly we see the absolute adequacy of Jesus, Jesus Christ's divine human person and sin-bearing death, the more incongruous does it appear that anybody could suppose that we have anything to offer, including, I would add, our knowledge of divine grace, including, I would add, our knowledge of the doctrines of grace, including, I would add, our knowledge of ourselves. Nothing to offer. We receive it as God's gift to us. And so to say justification by faith is to say justification by Christ. Faith is the, the hand that reaches out and lays hold of the object. And so however weak you may feel your faith to be, however puzzled you may feel sometimes when we come up against these great doctrines and feel their mystery and feel the tensions, however many ways we might have failed in living into this reality this week, lay hold of Christ and see that the object of faith is him. He is the one that has secured our salvation, not we ourselves. We could not hope for a better Savior. Well, let's turn to the text again and see the outworkings of these doctrines. Paul continues, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, how can we be sure that this has all really happened for us? How can we know that God's grace is really a grace for us? Verse 8 points the way. By grace through faith, not a work of our own doing, but a gift of God. This means that the only way to receive all these things from God through Christ is to put your trust in Christ as the faithful Savior he promises to be. It means to bank on him and forsake all other schemes and promises and assurances that oppose him. That is what faith in Christ is, a trust in Christ that he is able and will do all that he promises to do for his people. And this is not something that we are able to work in our own hearts. It's not like we can inwardly flip a switch and go from one minute to distrusting Christ and not believing in his promises and the next minute to believing in him. No, he enabled us to see the wretchedness of our own condition apart from him and the need for redeemer. He enabled us to have hearts that drew near to him. He is the one who freed our minds and wills from our captivity to sin and Satan. And so all boasting is removed from our lips. And all that remains is praise for the grace of God in Christ. And Paul goes on to emphasize the great reason why boasting on our part is removed. We are God's workmanship. We are, value, we are the valued people that God has been building, been building up. The salvation of his people by grace through faith in Christ has always been God's redemptive aim so that he might display the riches of his grace and kindness in Christ to the glory of the Father and the Son and the Spirit throughout all eternity. 
So salvation is not God's plan B in his eternal counsel, but the very way in which he displays his glory to his people throughout all eternity. And he has created us for good works in Christ. Now let's be clear about what this means, because I have the feeling that a lot of us probably hear that, and, well, in our thinking, we've been hearing all these wonderful things about God's grace and how it doesn't depend upon us, and then we land on this 10th verse, and we just think, well, I knew it. I knew there was a catch somewhere. Here it goes again. Now I got to do something. And this really is the crux of the matter, right? It's, it's all fine and good to say it's all by grace, but here comes this works bit, and man, I'm going to fail at this, but, you know, I guess I'll give it a go. But that's not what this means at all. That is, God has created us to share in the righteousness of Christ. And think about that. If we receive salvation by Christ's hand alone and by grace alone, not because of what we've done to earn it, not because of even our greater understanding of it than, than other people have as if such a thing were true of us, not because of anything that we could do in our own wills or, or flip a switch that suddenly went from not believing to believing him, and if that's true of our salvation, then the, the fact that we were created to share in his righteousness is also a fact of grace not a fact of our doing it to make it work, to make it a reality in our lives. And notice how this ought to change the way we think about good works. The mention of good works doesn't come at the beginning of this great chain of redemption, but as its fruit. The reward of redemption, so to speak, is that we get to participate in the good works that God has prepared before us. Good works are not how we earn our salvation. That would give us some room for boasting but the experience of the joy of our salvation. And this fact changes how we think about these works. These works are prepared before us by a loving God who is rich in mercy and kindness and who graciously redeemed us before we were ready or willing to ask for redemption. And so he's not the kind of God that has created these things just to throw some things out to us that make us trip just because that's the kind of thing he likes to do. No, God is gracious and merciful. He abounds in steadfast love and loving kindness. And so these good works were prepared before him as a reward for us to share in and enjoy the righteousness of Christ. And these good works are done in the ordinary day-to-day -day acts of trusting in Jesus and banking on his promises rather than in the empty promises of sin. And so it really shows us where our affections are, where our treasure is. Remember how Jesus confronted the, the false hopes and expectations of many in his day when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also? Well, we see this here. Where our, where our heart is, where our treasure is, there are, there, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Where, where we're banking on for our hope and satisfaction in this life, there our heart will be also. These good works show us whether we're banking on Christ and believing in him and trusting in him. And these good works are a gift of God's grace so that we will flourish in fellowship with him. So as I say, this doesn't follow at the end of a great chain of gracious talk only to leave us with a sour note in our mouths that just shows us that we've got to work a little bit harder to get God on our side. No, it shows us that we were created for these things and it's in the ordinary day-to-day -day trusting in Jesus that we get to participate in the good works that he has called us to. C.S. Lewis puts it in a, in a helpful way, I think. He says, the more we get to what we now call, the more we get to what we now call ourselves, let me see what, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let Christ take us over, the more truly, we are, truly ourselves we become. 
He invented, as an author invents characters in a novel, all the different people that you, were, you and I were intended to be. In that sense, our real selves are, are all waiting for us in him. It is no good trying to be myself without him. That's a good way, I think, of capturing this final verse, that we are created for good works in Christ Jesus. Really, that it's no good trying to be ourselves without him. It's no good trying to earn our salvation. It's no good trying to get assurance and peace and hope in this life apart from him. And so the good works that God has created beforehand for us in Christ Jesus are really revealed or are really experienced, are really practiced in discipleship the more we bank on him, the more we put our trust and hope in him, the more we seek to cultivate and, and grow in our understanding of all that he promises to be for his people and receive it as, by his hand as a gift, not as something that we earn, not as something that we get because we have better theology than our neighbors, not as something that we do to get God on our side, but as we receive as a gift. And so a question this raises for us, I think, is how does the demonstration of the riches of God's grace in Christ affect your view of his commandments? You see, oftentimes, and this has been a common problem, I think, in, in the Christian church, is that we, we create this dichotomy between God's commandments and God's love. And so we always feel a tension when we hear about the good works that God has created for us and the good news of salvation by grace. And yet we see in this passage, this is not a tension at all. The same God who redeemed us out of our sinfulness when we were not looking for it is the same God who created these things for our good and invites us into um, them as an experience of the joy of our salvation. And so we ought to think long and hard about how we're viewing his commandments, how we're viewing the call to discipleship. Do we hear it in the key of just another thing to do as the Christian sort of duty to get God on our side? Or maybe even more perniciously, we do the sorts of things because, these sorts of things because we recognize that it's nice to have a happy life and it's nice to have peace and you want your kids to grow up to be well-adjusted and I'm successful in this world, and, and maybe this Christianity stuff will, will help me to get there. And so we use our Christianity as a way to facilitate all the sorts of things that the, the world wants too. And maybe we just use these things as a, we recognize, well, that's a better way of getting these things. Or do we view these things, no, as a way in which to experience all that God has created for us to be in Christ Jesus? And we, we receive them as a gift. And yes, of course, the Bible has wonderful and good things and wise things to say about how we raise our kids and how, about we, how we do our jobs and, and how we're mindful of our, our duties in this world. And, and if we ignore these things, that will have bad consequences for us. But it all depends on the way that we're doing them and, and the, the reasons that we're doing them for. If we're doing them to, to earn God's favor or merely to, to make secure other idols that we have apart from Christ, then we're really missing the point of all that God has called us to in his commandments which is really to know him and to experience him, and perhaps most importantly, to demonstrate that to a needy and hungry world that needs to know Jesus and needs to know salvation by grace. And so these are some of the great implications of the doctrines of grace. And again, as I say, it's not salvation by rightness. It's not salvation by knowledge. It's salvation by grace. And so, yes, there is mystery here. It is difficult to understand. There are lots of tensions that, that I feel that, that are difficult to resolve. But let us bank upon the great fact of salvation by grace, the great fact that we receive these things as a gift, and God loves us. So, what does Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 teach us? At least three things. 
One, our condition apart from Christ was more desperate than we knew. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, so that we might rejoice in his grace and walk in his ways to the praise of his grace forever. May this be true of our own hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord, we do love the gospel. Lord, may it work its way in our hearts and sink down deep into our bones and stick to our ribs, and may it be the sort of thing that shapes the way we think about you and about ourselves and about life. Lord, may we not be indifferent to the gospel, but may we recognize that we have received these things even when we did not know to look for it and that you love us, and that you are calling us more and more to understand just what happened to us in the moment of redemption and to live out that reality day to day and before a watching world. Lord, may this be true of our lives, that we would be so enamored of Jesus that he would get a fair showing in the way that we live and talk, and most of all, that it would be so centered in our hearts that we would, we would not fear the world or anything in the world and we would not be anxious about anything that we may face, and that we would not put our trust in anyone but Jesus, so that you would be glorified in everything. We ask these things in his name. Amen.